1 Peter chapter 4, we are reading verses 7 through 11 and studying together the end. Well, not really the end, but the end that is at hand. 1 Peter 4, beginning in verse 7. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves, as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To Him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Father, to You and to Your Son, Jesus Christ, belong glory and honor and dominion and power and strength. Father, this is your word for your people, and Lord, you are good, and you are powerful, you are holy, you are strong, you are righteous, you are loving and gracious and merciful. Father, I am none of those things, but God, I pray that you would work in me and work in each of our hearts this morning, that you would speak to us and grow us and change us, that we would become more like Christ and more like you are. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, the end is near. The end is near. Isn't it interesting how consumed people can be with the end of the world? And just as varied as there are people, there are varied ideas about how that end will come. Aliens might come and wipe us out, right? Or enslave us and that'll be the end of life. Asteroids or comets could just come suddenly slamming into the earth. Nuclear war, robot, well, it used to be robots, now it's computers, right? Computers gaining consciousness and taking over the world and eliminating mankind. Super volcanoes, cataclysmic earthquakes, zombies, right? Even the sun itself, oh my goodness, the end is coming and lots of ideas about what could bring the end of our existence. But it's people's responses to those that I'm a little bit more interested in, and and we should be too, because most people give those things a thought about the end that could come, but then what do you do with it? Just kind of dismiss it, right? Just kind of push it aside. It's too much to think about, right? I mean, it's just, it's too big for your mind to kind of comprehend, too much to wrap yourself around. Um, There's not much you can do about it, and there's not really indication, any indication that any of that's actually going to happen for right now, so a lot of us just Pass it out of our minds. Just We think about it for a second and go, ooh, that's too much, and then we push it aside. But many people, a lot of times, especially in our culture, before dismissing it, we become entertained by it, right? The stories in books and movies and on TV that all explore what might happen. If any of those or all of those things happened, uh, what would it be like? What would life be like in, in our existence if the end of humanity, if we were faced with that? 
A lot of stories somewhere include a caution for us today that we shouldn't be so dismissive of the end. You realize, of course, that uh, as you're watching those, there's always one main character who says, the end is coming, something's happening, there's something changing, and everybody just kind of dismisses and ignores and goes on with their existence until it happens, right? And so many stories warn against just thinking that everything's always going to continue the way it always has. Other people respond to those end-of-the-world ideas with panic or terror, right? (gasps) It's hard to think. It's hard to think about. It's hard to take that. So there are stories that warn against the hysteria that comes because of the the end-of-the-world fears. And, of course, since this is Family Worship Sunday and we've got children in here, one of those that comes to mind is Chicken Little, right? (laughs) An acorn falls on Chicken Little's head and he concludes that the sky is falling It's the end of the world, right? It was nothing but an acorn, but he's convinced and his sincere warnings convince and persuade Henny Penny and Goosey Lucy and Ducky Lucky and others to get caught up in the frenzy and embark on this journey and go tell the king, the sky is falling, it's the end. But of course, they along the way fall into the hands of Foxy Loxy and their baseless fears, not the end lead to their doom, right? So the the warning is there not to get all up in a frenzy and not to get panicky and worried about it. There are some who have followed that path in real life. In March of 1997, 39 members of the Heaven's Gate cult drank luminol and then covered their heads with plastic bags to commit mass suicide, and they did it because they believed that the comet Hale-Bopp, remember the Hale-Bopp comet, if you were alive back then, was passing overhead. They believed it was the vehicle that would get them to heaven, and the only way to do that was to commit that mass suicide. If they missed it, they wouldn't be able to go, and so they all did that together. So the beliefs about the end of the world vary, and, and how to respond to that vary from just dismissing it to behaving and responding in just ridiculous ways. But what should our response be? Because there is an end, and it is coming. And we know that not because Hollywood tells us, and not because books and stories and cult leaders tells us, but because God tells us. There's a God who created everything, and He's told us He created everything, and He's told us He's going to uncreate everything. And so the warnings that we have are helpful not to be dismissive of the end. The warnings are also helpful that we don't go into panic mode or go crazy about it. Both of those are true, even though verse 7 says the end is near at hand. But these words were written 2,000 years ago, right? So how can it be that the end is near, that the end is at hand when it said that 2,000 years ago? The answer is because God is not like us right? The answer is that God is not like us. When we make threats, we either don't follow through or we follow through very quickly, right? But God doesn't make threats. God makes promises. God tells us what's going to happen. And when he says he's going to do something, he will do it. But when it comes to judgment, God's not in that big hurry that we get into to fulfill that kind of a promise or threat or statement. You know, We've talked about it before, but God doesn't take any pleasure in the death of the wicked. He doesn't take pleasure in seeing people destroyed because of their sin. He is just, he is righteous, but he's also long-suffering and patient and loving and kind. He knows that we are made out of dust. 
He knows that we are weak in comparison to him. And you know, as I thought about that, it, that's such a weak way to say that. Weak in comparison to God? Like there's no comparison at all, is there? Isaiah paints a picture for us. He says, you know, if you took a scale and you put God on one side and you put all of us on the other, it wouldn't even count as the dust on the scale. Like there's nothing to put on the scale on this side. You wouldn't even, there's not even anything there to blow off of the scale. We're the dust. He says, he says we are accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. Our God is so big. Our God is so great. The God that we sing to, the God that we worship, the God whose word that we read, he's so big and we are so small and would be insignificant except that to him we're not. He cares for us and he loves us. And so he's not in a big hurry to see us wiped out. He's not in a big hurry to come and destroy everyone. You know, you think about how long it was between the time that Moses prophesied to Israel how God's judgment was going to come to them, and how long it was before it came. 900 years. Noah preached for 100 years before the flood came. God wasn't in this big hurry. He's not this mean, spiteful, angry, capricious God up there. I can't wait to, I'm going to zap them as soon as they mess up, right? That's not who God is. He will judge, but he's not in a big hurry to do it. You remember the prophet Ezekiel? Ezekiel 12, the people complained. They said, the days grow long and every vision comes to nothing. Like, you keep saying God's going to judge, but he's not. He hasn't yet, therefore he's not going to, right? That's what they said to, to Ezekiel. It's the same thing people said to Peter in his day. In Second Peter, after writing First Peter, they said, look, it still hasn't happened, right? Second Peter 3, they said, where's the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. Everything's just going to keep on happening, Peter, so just knock it off with the whole, the end is coming, right? His judgment hasn't come, that must mean it's not coming. But as we said, Peter points out that God is patient with us. He's long-suffering, he's not wishing that any should perish. The fact that it hasn't happened yet is his grace toward us. It's his mercy on us. It's not inability, it's not laziness, right? It could happen at any moment. It is coming, it is at hand. When, you know, when we challenge God on that, we say, well, look, it hasn't, it's been 2,000 years. What do you mean it's coming? What do you mean it's at hand? We're, we're challenging him. We're challenging why he hasn't just lashed out and, in judgment and struck us down, right? And we're challenging his patience and his mercy. To God who is outside of time, he can see the beginning as clearly as he can see the end. And just as clearly as he can see into our hearts and our minds even this morning. So mocking him for saying, Look, the end is at hand when it hasn't come. That's like mocking Jesus on the cross. Because what do they say? If you're really the Son of God, then come down off the cross. Then we'll believe, right? But Jesus had a lot bigger plan in mind than just proving something about himself. So when God's waiting, he's delaying the judgment of the end. It's because he's got a bigger plan, but we don't mock him for it, right? We, 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 we praise him for that. In fact, Peter tips us off that that's what he's talking about with this word, the end, here in verse 7. It's not just the end of everything. It's the goal of everything. The, the end goal of everything is at hand. The purpose for everything is at hand. The consummation of everything, the, the point of everything happening. I mean, not just our suffering that Peter's been talking about, not just our, the creation, not just our salvation, but everything. There is an agenda for everything that is happening. And spoiler alert, it's in verse 11. The glory of God. The end is near. It's near as God sees it. And it could be near to us. It could be right this very second. 
And if it's not, it's God's grace. And it's his mercy that it has. It's not going to be zombies or aliens, but the Bible is clear that there is an end. But the Bible is also clear about how we should conduct ourselves in light of this end that is at hand. How should we respond? It's not through hysteria or frenzy, and it's not through just dismissing and ignoring it and pretending it's not going to happen, right? This is an encouraging and motivating little passage here. This, this little paragraph that we have is a motivating and, and, and encouraging passage for us to continue and to increase in what God has given us to do. And so as Peter has led us deeply into instruction and encouragement about suffering that might come because of our faith, he's led us into discussions about persecution on top of just life suffering, he takes a minute and he backs up. He backs way up all the way to the top. He says, look, let's get up here and see the whole point of everything, the whole reason for everything, the grand overall picture. What should we be doing? What's our response? Because whether suffering happens or not, whether suffering comes or doesn't, we have to live our life before God, the God who made everything and the God who will unmake everything. So these words jump off the page, don't they? The end of all things is at hand. It's a startling statement. It, it seems to interrupt what he's been saying. But it's not an interruption. It, this is an explanation and an encouragement so of what our response needs to be. What's our response? Is it going to look like those frenzied, hysteric, panicking, flying off the handle, um, in the words of the vernacular, freaking out, right? Acting crazy, bizarre, ridiculous ways? No. Maybe he's going to tell us, well, you need to argue about the end, right? Uh, you need to talk about what it's going to look like, what's going to happen. You need to figure it out and sort it all out. Maybe that's what he's going to say. Uh, try to figure out what the mark of the beast looks like, right? <laughs> As we talked about last week. Uh, maybe it's, oh, let's just be done talking about it. I'm over it all. Jesus, let's just take us home. <laughs> No, the answer to being confronted with the reality of the end coming is not any of those. It's not seclude ourselves. It's not exalt ourselves, strengthen ourselves, kill ourselves, or pacify ourselves. The end is coming, and Peter tells us and reminds us so that we will prepare ourselves the way that God intends for us to be prepared. And so every day we live our life is another day to be prepared for the end that's coming, and it's another day closer to the end that is coming. Now, I need to say before we get into this passage too far that this is for the believer. This is for the person who has already believed in Jesus Christ as their Savior, as their Lord. If you've not done that, this is not going to help you. This is not going to help. It's, not, it, it's like, you know, this is teaching you how to drive a car and you don't have a car. <laughs> Please don't leave this place. Can I encourage you, don't leave this place if you don't know the Lord Jesus without talking to someone here who does that can share with you the love of Christ and the, and the truth of Christ and his gospel, his good news that saves you from God's wrath. That's the first step. This applies to us who are believers. If not, please submit to him first. But what does it look like then? What's the simple boiled down version of what it looks like to be ready for the end of everything for the believer. No sensationalism, no gimmicks, whether we're in the middle of suffering or not. What does God expect for us as he draws near? Here it is in three parts. Number one, in order to be ready for the end, control your mind to pray. Control your mind to pray. Verse 7, the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Now, let's explain this a little bit. 
Because self-controlled seems like one of those words that means act right, right? It, mean, it, it seems like it means control your behavior, outwardly be under control. And that's a part of what it means, but really the word has more of an internal sense in the mind which controls the person. Okay, so it's not self-control like, you know, act right, stop acting up, you know, stop acting crazy. No, the, the, the word is to be able to reason and think properly and in a sane manner. Be in your right mind. And some translations use sober-minded for this word instead of the next word. But this word, self-controlled, is the idea that because the end is at hand, it's near, you might be tempted to go wild or go crazy with unfounded enthusiasm, you might, you know, in, or the opposite, indifferent detachment. You know, you might want to do one of those two things, lose our mind in frenzy or go mind, lose our mind in apathy, but Peter says, don't do that. Don't do either one of those. Be sane in your thinking and your reasoning so that you'll be able to think and act properly. So it's control your mind so that you begin to, to act properly. It's inside to outside. Be self-controlled. Sober-minded is the other word. This means not in danger of irrational thinking. Well composed in your mind, which includes not being drunk, so that's why it has sober-minded, not drunk, instead alert and watchful. We took a trip where we flew um, on airplanes, and it's not as fun as it used to be, <laughs> but when you get back and, and your luggage is on the carousel, you keep looking, you're just, you're on your tiptoes, right, because there's a crowd of people, everybody thinks their luggage is going to be the first one out, right, so everybody gets right up close, and you're, you're on your tiptoes, and you're trying to look, that's what that's what we are. We're alert. We're watching. Is he coming now? Is he coming now? You're in control of your mind. Listen, life 101, you cannot control two things in life. There are two things we, we, nobody can control in life. Circumstances, because God's in control of every circumstance, and our, our job is to learn to trust him with the circumstances, and two, other people, right? You can't control circumstances, you can't control other people, but you can control your own mind, your thoughts. You can change your thinking, you can influence your, th you can even stop thinking, right? <laughs> but being sober-minded is being in control of your thinking. So now that we have that understanding, when we are reminded that the end is coming and we're wondering, how do I prepare, you know, do I give away everything I have because it's going to be here? Do I go off the deep end and lose my mind? No. Do I just sit back and forget everything because he's coming back right now? No. The answer is, to be ready for the end, I'm going to keep my mind under control. For what? Why would I do that? For the sake of prayer, Peter says, so that I can pray. You know, if you're going all wild about the end and all you can think about is the end and it consumes your mind and your thoughts and your words and that's all you can think about, what do you have any need of prayer for, right? He's going to be back any minute. He's going to be back any minute. So I'm just going crazy. I'm going wild. He's going to be back any minute. I'm not going to pray. I don't have time for that. Or, or if you're going to sit back in detachment and say, well, the end is coming. Why do anything? <laughs> What need do you have of prayer if you're just going to sit back and do nothing? So we get our minds under control. We get our minds right and thinking correctly so that we will be able to pray. Sticking with the airline thing, a few years ago, a guy was on a Delta Airlines flight, and the light came on to buckle up because we're taxiing out to the runway. He said, well, we're not flying yet, so I don't need my seatbelt. And as the pilot approached the runway, he had to make a complete and sudden stop, and the guy went forward, and he suffered some injuries, and the, the seat, that, you know, the back of the seat that was in front of him. He said, well, we're not in the air yet, so what need do I need of the seatbelt? 
His mind wasn't, he wasn't thinking right, and we don't think right. We're not going to put our seatbelt on. We're not going to pray when our mind isn't thinking or reasoning properly. Our human reasoning, our human answer is always going to be wrong, whatever we come up with. So he says, think correctly. Get your thinking under control so that you will pray. But it's not because there's any kind of prayer power. It's not because there's some kind of power in prayer itself. You know, we, we need to make sure that we understand there are a lot of people that pray every day. They pray to Allah. They pray to the earth. They pray to themselves, right? Those kinds of prayers, there's no power in whatsoever. The power of the prayers that we pray is in the power of the one who is all-powerful that we're praying to, right? Because prayer is where we realize we have no power. We don't have any ability ourselves to make any of this happen or to to bring this about. It's where we recognize our complete dependence on God. You know, you think about whether you're praising Him. What are you praising Him for? Because I'm not worthy of praise. He is. When you're petitioning Him, you're asking Him for something, it's because He's the one who gives it. When you're asking forgiveness, it's because He's the one who forgives. When you're confessing and thanking and everything that we do in prayer, it's a humiliation for us, a humbling for us before this great and powerful God because of our complete dependence on Him. Prayer is where we commune with God, where we boldly approach the throne of mercy in time of need, which is always, whether we realize it or not, prayer is how we access and submit to God's will. In prayer, we don't get what we want. God gets what He wants. And it's always good. Good for us and good for Him. So when you hear the end is at hand, don't hear... It's time to start acting differently, right, than what he's told us to act. He wants us to set aside everything that he's all said and and just get ready because he's going to be here. It's near. When you hear the end is near, hear, let's get focused and concentrate and intensify even more on controlling our minds so that we can pray as he's told us to do all along. That's what he wants from us. The only way you can really control your mind, as we've talked about before, is by filling it with the Word of God, the mind of Christ that's in here in written form, in the Word. We have to do this because our thinking is influenced so much by the world, by sin, by our flesh. And the world's answers are ignore it or panic, right? But we have been made into a new person. We have new power from God to be able to take every thought captive to obey Christ, not just to ignore Christ, not just to panic and... and go crazy, but to obey Christ, not to obey our lust. 2 Timothy 1.7. How many times have we talked about this lately, the last couple of years? This is important. God didn't give us a, a mind, a spirit of fear, a mind that's, that's worried and anxious. That doesn't come from God. The world gives us the spirit of fear. The world gives us weakness, the absence of love, and an unstable mind. But we have a spirit of God of power and of love and a sound mind. So we renew our mind by the power of the Holy Spirit who lives within us by the Word of God. And that changes our mind and that controls our mind. That's what we do here on Sundays. That's what we try to do here on Sundays. That's what we try to do as we disciple one another in koinonia groups. That's what we do as we meet one-on-one and try to help one another and disciple one another. It's what we're always supposed to be doing and so that when we're praying, we're trusting And we're having our minds changed. Brothers and sisters, I know that these messages can be so heavy. (laughs) You know, so often you can go to church and you you can go to a church and you can hear just a light message. And you can hear just a message that's entertaining or that it's easy. And then you come here and you think, what is wrong with these people? How come there's no joy? (laughs) And there is real joy in this. 
But it is God's word that he's telling us and he's, he's warning us. And so we need to be aware of this. And we don't mean for it to be a heavy, wet blanket on us. But we need to be exposed to his truth so that our minds can be changed, so that we can control them, so that we're praying to him. Not just so that we're deceived into thinking that I'm okay, you're okay, everyone's okay, and everything's going to be fine. Everything will be good one day in the Lord. But it'll be so much better than good. So we, intent, we intensify our mind control. We submit more and more to the control of the Word of God, the Spirit of God, through His Word in our thinking, and so that we pray more and more every day as we see the day approaching. That's the first way. That's the first step for preparing for the end. There's a second way here. Number two, in order to be ready for the end, kindle your, your heart to love. Kindle your heart to love. If you prefer old, older language, uh, the word quicken used to be used. <laughs> quicken, right? Quicken your mind. Can kindle up your mind. Not ignite. Have you ever seen those videos where they take a, a Christmas tree and they put it in the middle of nothing so that it, and they light it on fire and it just goes up in this humongous, just amazing, infernal ball fire that's just, it's crazy. And within about five minutes, it's done. It's gone. It's burned itself out. So we're not saying do that. <laughs> we're not saying just go all out for every second of every day because we can't handle that. We'll just burn out. But rouse your heart. Provoke your heart. And excite your heart continually. Kindle it up. And the words here are keeping earnest love for one another. This is that unconditional agape love. Keeping is the word to have. It's a strong having, a maintaining, fostering it within yourself, seizing it and not letting go. That kind of, that kind of love. It's, it's the word earnest attached to it, which is stretched and strained in eagerness. It's used of an athlete's muscles when they're, when they're competing in the, in the, in the uh, Olympics, in an athletic event. It's, it's a whole lot of effort here, in other words, wrapped up into these words. It's a kindling and an exciting and a stirring and a quickening your heart to love one another unconditionally. No strings attached. Straining at it. Working at it. That's what he's saying for us. Not so that we can earn anything, but because we've already been given everything in Christ, including this kind of love. Now, again, this isn't what we want to hear. We want to hear easy. <laughs> you know, I just want God to do it through me. I want something miraculous because that's a whole lot easier when God just does it. <laughs> and sometimes he works that way, but most of the time, he uses our energies, our efforts, our straining. He uses that work for his glory because sometimes it takes a lot of effort to love people, doesn't it? You don't have to, say, you don't have to raise your hand. <laughs> yeah, it's hard to love me. <laughs> <laughs> but it is. <laughs> it takes a lot of effort to love people. We're messy people. We're not perfect. We don't have it all together, no matter what it looks like, what it seems like, you know, no matter how big the smile is. <laughs> you know, we don't all have everything all together. But it's God working in us, and he's using our strength. And when you think that you've exhausted all your strength, he gives you more strength to be able to keep doing it. So don't try to hold back and say, well, God, just do it. Do it for me and do it through me. Put that effort in, straining at it, pushing it for it, seeking it, looking for it, trying for it, doing it, because that's God's using your strength to do that. And he's going to keep giving you more strength. Because how much strength does God have? All, right? It's unlimited. He's got unlimited supplies of strength. 
The temptation is to leave love behind. You know, when the end is coming, what do you think? Everybody out for themselves, right? (laughs) Forget about that. Jesus says that's what's going to happen. In Matthew 24, verse 12, he says, the love of many, talking about the end, the love of many will grow cold. He says, don't do that. That's the opposite of what God has for us. Revelation 2, Jesus is, is speaking to the church at Ephesus. What was the issue there? The serious charge against them was that they had abandoned their first love. How did Jesus say to get it back? Remember from where you have fallen, repent, and do the works you did at first. Working to rekindle that love. Not working to earn that from God, but he's already given you that love and he's already given you the ability to obey him. So work to rekindle that. Repent from where you've fallen. Remember from where you've fallen. Repent and do those works. Struggling against the easy default tendency just to let love go. We want easy, but this is hard. You know, good doctrine is hard. Good theology is hard, isn't it? Everybody has a theology, whether you can put it into a book and, and, or share it with somebody. We all have a theology. We all have a way of seeing the world and God and ourselves. We all have a way of doing that. Good theology, good doctrine is really hard, but it's easier than love. Good works are really hard. You know, loving other people. I mean, doing things for other people, serving other people, doing good works is hard because we're tired. We have a lot going on. We're always so busy, but those are even easier than love. Really loving Really loving people is really hard. But if we don't have that good, solid doctrine and theology, we can't write a theology book, and we can't go out and serve and do everything for good works with all the unlimited energy we have, and both of those are easier than love, then why would we ever not be working to kindle our love? The other things that are easier we're not doing, how can we be saying, how can we be showing that we're doing the harder thing of loving It goes against our flesh to love other people more than ourselves. It goes against what we want. That's why it's so difficult, but it's so important. That's what God has. That's what God has for us, for each of us, and for all of us. Peter gives us two practical pictures of love here. In verse 8, he says, Keep loving earnestly one another, since love covers a multitude of sins. And he's speaking about forgiveness. And verse 9, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Two practical pictures, forgiveness and hospitality. Love covers a multitude of sin. Sometimes we might be confused by that. We might think, well, he's saying hiding sins, covering them up, but he's not talking about covering up sins and hiding them. He's talking about covering them up with forgiveness. Like we sang this morning, covering by the blood of Jesus. When Adam and Eve sinned, God gave them animal skins to cover them. On the Day of Atonement in the Old Testament, the sacrifice covered the sins of God's people to forgive them. And Paul says in Romans 4, 7, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. In Hebrew parallelism, the forgiven and the covered are synonyms. Whose sins are forgiven, who's covered. Jesus has covered our sins with his blood. He's forgiven us. And so forgiving one another is a practical picture of love. When somebody wrongs you, how easy is it to forgive them? Maybe sometimes it's easy if it's a little thing. But what if, it's, what if it's a big thing? What if it really hurt? Do I have to forgive then? What if it was by somebody that should know better? You know, that Christian over there or that pastor or, or that deacon over there or, you know, that Koinonia group leader, they, well, they should have known better. I don't have to forgive them, right? 
you wouldn't believe what they did to me. You know, this is how hard it is to kindle love within ourselves, within our hearts. We have to kindle love enough to even forgive when people have wronged us. It may look like allowing yourself to be hurt by others in some small way, loving them enough to overlook it. I can't believe the way he looked at me. I can't believe the way she didn't say hello to me. <laughs> Whatever it is, I mean, some little thing, forgive and love. This is not being okay with sin, right? We're not excusing sin, but we're not nitpicking every little thing that somebody does. One commentator said it this way, where love is lacking, every word is viewed with suspicion, every action is liable to misunderstandings and conflicts abound to Satan's perverse delight, end quote. That's what Satan does, right? Just push love out of the way. It's really hard, <laughs> Just let that go a little bit, and then you view everybody with suspicion. Don't, don't fall for pettiness that divides. Don't allow Satan to do that. There was a group of people um, years ago out of the charismatic movement that made up their, their pledge. They had a fellowship pledge. We're going to just be completely open and honest with everybody, with one another. And anytime somebody does or says or wears something that I don't like, I'm going to say something because I just want to be open and honest some of you, some of you understand where that's going, right? They said, this is meant to stimulate growth and love for the Lord and for one another. It's going gonna, it's gonna to grow us. But God doesn't say nitpick every little thing about everybody around you, does he? They decided to replace what God said with what they said. We got a better idea, God. We're going to do it this way. You know what happened? Within six months, the group was gone, right? I mean, that, they just constantly bickered with one another. All they focused on was pettiness, what they didn't like about one another. That destroys rather than builds up. Love covers pettiness. <laughs> love doesn't need to have its own way. Love doesn't need to make other people more like me and think like me and talk like me. Love doesn't need to have others stop annoying me, <laughs> right? Love covers all of that. Now, when there is sin that needs to be addressed, we still address it in love, right? Jesus tells us how to do it. You know, the first thing you've got to do is get the log out of your own eye before you go trying to get the speck out of somebody else's. We, we owe God an infinite debt of, because of our sin. We have an infinite debt because of our sin. Well, God, it's easy for you to forgive me. It's not so easy to forgive that person. <laughs> no. No, God's forgiveness of us took the death of his perfect son. And we're not downplaying offenses and hurts here. These are real. When we're offended, when we're hurt, those are real, and we can and should reconcile. But we need to keep Jesus' words in mind here. His truth, not our own self-importance and self-exaltation. Kindle your heart to love enough to forgive. Next, he says, kindle or quicken, excite your heart enough to, to love to show hospitality without grumbling. You know, the word hospitality here is, is actually a compound word. It means brother love for guests, <laughs> loving guests. Now, it doesn't mean always having people over. It doesn't mean loving people that are over all the time. It doesn't, you know, it doesn't mean we have to be just, you know, no door on the house. <laughs> but loving those who come into your home, desiring for believers to come into your home, inviting them to come and loving them while they're there. In the cultural context of this letter, it included brothers and sisters that you'd never even met before just because they claim the name of Christ. Oh, you love Jesus? So do I. Come on over. We'll feed you. <laughs> we'll give you a place to stay. And do it without grumbling. Can you imagine trying to do this without grumbling? Like somebody you've never met before, somebody that doesn't know the rules of your house, 
You know, I mean, how many of us have people over and then the que- as soon as they leave, as soon as they walk out the door, did you see the way that they, right? Did you hear what they said about, can you believe that, right? Why do they always, whatever it is, right? Fill in the blank. This isn't love-motivated hospitality. You know, you can have somebody over and you can attend to their every need. You can make them feel welcome. You can kick them back on your couch and have them kick their feet up and be relaxed and everything attended to, everything they ever want. But as soon as they walk out, if you grumble about it, it was never love-motivated hospitality. Even if you don't grumble about it out loud, God sees into our hearts. It was some other kind of motivation. Do you know that the reason that Christianity spread across the world was because of hospitality. Jesus' ministry depended on it. The apostles' ministries relied on it. Paul's missionary journeys used hospitality a lot. After those ministries, homes were used for the church to meet in because they didn't have buildings like this that we're so blessed to have. It depended on people opening their homes and having strangers sometimes come into their homes. That's why this is such a practical picture of love, because it requires having people into your home who are not you or your family, who don't know your rules and your comforts and your tastes. They might have different political views than you, right? They might, have, they might buy into different economic philosophies. <gasps> they may not talk the same way. They might even come over on a Sunday afternoon when football is on. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what kind of guest would do that? <laughs> Hospitality is that special act of opening the most cherished space that you have, your home. Sacrificing what you would normally do for the sake of loving and blessing another person. It might be for a few minutes, it might be for a whole month, right? If you hosted like a missionary family home on furlough or something. I mean, it could be five minutes or five months. But listen, this this is not teaching for a select few of us. You know, some of you are saying, well, I, you know, I'm glad I don't have that gift. <laughs> That's for everybody else. This is an expectation for all of us. Notice that Peter isn't speaking to pastors here. He's not speaking to leaders of a church. He's not addressing, you know, those of you with this gift, make sure that you're doing this. No, that comes later. He says, all of us are doing this. this it might be a surprise, but we're actually not suggested by God to do this. We're commanded by God to do this here we're commanded, Romans 12, 13 says we're supposed to be seeking for ways to be hospi- hospitable, showing hospitality. Look for opportunities. Hebrews 13 tells us that uh, we should not neglect to show hospitalities to strangers. You've got other verses in your notes to study on your own, but this is for all of us. All of us, whether we think we have a gift of hospitality or not, we're to do this. Now, these are two practical pictures of love, and they don't exhaust every way that we're to love everybody, but these are two of the most difficult, I think, Uh, and that's why Peter uses these. Keep on loving earnestly one another, even enough to forgive, even enough to have them over (laughs) to your house. This is the kind of difficult love that puts others ahead of yourself, but you've got to kindle your heart to do this. You've You've got to work in your heart to do this, even as far as forgiving others, bringing strangers into your home so you can love them. That's how we get ready for the end. You know, we might be tempted to just kick everybody out and say, get up, you know, I'm getting ready for the Lord. He's coming back, it's at hand. Jesus says, no. We've seen the first two ways now to to be ready. The first way is control your mind so that you'll be praying. Control your heart, kindle your heart. 
There's a third way, verses 10 and 11. In order to be ready for the end, conduct your life to God's glory. Conduct your life, your manner of life, your ministry, your service, all for the glory of God. You, brother and sister, each one of us, all of us are called into ministry. And ministry, service, is what God has called us to do until Jesus returns. You know, that's part of why he doesn't tell us when he's coming back. If I knew when the end would come, my nature is to procrastinate, right? I won't do anything until I know he's about to come back. You know, Jesus told us a parable about that. If you'll turn to Luke chapter 12 with me. Luke chapter 12, you'll you'll see a parable here that Jesus told to to preempt that for us (laughs) so that we don't act that way, so we don't do that. Now, before we read the parable, we need to understand what a, what a steward was, what a steward was at the time, or a manager. It's the same word. If you were the owner of a business or a property, you, needed, uh, you, you had a, a group of servants who worked for you, you would pay your servants, you would pay the people that worked for you. And so instead of you using all your time to do that, you would hire a servant that you trusted, that you would um, entrust with your resources, and you would say, servant, you pay everybody else, right? You're my steward. Um, you don't have anything of your own. You take what's mine, you get, take of my resources, and you give it to those other people. And so he was given the authority and the responsibility to use those resources to accomplish the work that the owner had in mind, right? That was, that's the job of a steward. So here in Luke chapter 12, Jesus is saying you need to be ready. Look at verse 40 of Luke 12. You also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. So Peter says, well, are you telling this to us or for everybody? You know, we, is this going to be soon, Jesus? I mean, you know, can, how long do we have to do this for? Here's Jesus' answer. The Lord said, who then is the faithful and wise manager, whom his master will set over his household to give them their portion of food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. When the master comes back and finds the steward doing what the steward was meant to do, entrusted with the resources and, and working to do what the master wanted him to do with those resources, there's a blessing and a promotion for that servant. But if that servant says to himself, my master is delayed in coming and begins to beat the male and female servants and to eat and drink and get drunk, the master of that servant will come at a day when he does not expect and at an hour he does not know and he will cut him in pieces and put him with the unfaithful and that servant who knew his master's will but did not get ready or act according to his will will receive a severe beating. But the one who did not know and did what deserved a beating will receive a light beating. Everyone to whom much was given, of him much will be required, and from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. So in other words, Jesus says, I'm telling this to everybody, right? You don't know when he's coming, nobody else does, so everyone needs to be doing what I've told you to do. You're my stewards. Well, that's for stewards though, right? That's for managers. Good thing that that's not us, but actually that's what Peter calls us in verse 10 in our passage. What happened to the steward who was bad, who abused others and abused his authority and responsibility? He was judged severely. What does Jesus say about that good steward? He was blessed when the, the servant was doing what his master said. He was, was furthering his master's goals and using his master's resources for that. Peter says we are good stewards of God's varied grace as we use our gifts to serve one another. 
How can I serve other people? I don't have anything of my own. Am I supposed to try to do this on my own? Am I supposed to just try to try harder and work more and it's just all about my own resources? No, brother and sister, please don't hear legalism here. Don't hear that you've got to try harder and work more and do more and try to figure it all out on your own. This life of service and ministry that we are called to is a life of grace from God. Limitless grace of God. You expend yourself in this ministry and service because you have access to all of the grace of God. All of his strength and all of the grace and all of the ability that he has, he gives to us. In verse 10 of our passage in verse Peter, it says, we have each received a gift. What does that mean? You've already been given the gift from God. You didn't earn it, but it was yet another gift. That, I mean, the gifts that God gives us, the, the gift of salvation, the gift of life of every breath that we get, and then he continues to shower blessings on us like these gifts. But this gift that he gives to us is a gift that we are to be stewards of. It's a gift that we're to give to other people. That's why Peter says, use it for one another. It's not a gift that I get to keep to myself. It's a gift from God's grace, but God's grace is never selfish. That's kind of the, it's kind of the idea of grace, right? It's not selfish. In any gift that God gives you, there is never any selfishness attached to it or accepted in that gift. That goes for any gift that God's ever given us. Love, he's given you love so that you'll go love other people. Forgiveness, He's forgiven you so that you'll forgive other people, right? Money, he, he gives you money so you'll provide for your family and so you'll give to those who can't work. The gift that he's given you here, he's given you to steward, to serve one another. God's grace is not selfish and neither are the gifts that he gives us in his grace. It is his varied grace, his multicolored grace of all kinds and shapes and sizes. What if we don't do it though? You know, this, this parable was good because this guy went crazy and he, he started abusing his power and just did whatever he wanted to eat, drink, be merry. You know, he did all that stuff. What if we don't do anything? Turn to Matthew chapter 25. And again, this is Jesus speaking about the end. Matthew 25, 13. Maybe it's just better if we don't do anything. I mean, that guy got a severe beating for acting the wrong way, going crazy about the end coming. Maybe it'd be safer just to kind of sit back. Matthew 25, verse 13, Jesus says, Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. Verse 14, For it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. Again, these servants are managers, stewards. He's got three of them. This man has so much. He's got three stewards. And their job is to use his resources for his purposes, right? Verse 15, to one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. He knew his stewards. He knew, th he knew their abilities. He gave them gifts according to their abilities and trusted them to do what they were told to do. Verse 16, he who had received the five talents went at once and traded them, and he made five talents more. Now, it's important to realize he didn't just go out that day and make five talents. A talent was worth 20 years' wages for a labor. So this is five times 20. It's 100 years' labor. Uh, uh, wages for, for a worker. So he's not just going to double it like that, right? He, he goes out and, and it's a long time. Verse 19 says it's going to be a long time. So for the entire length of time that the master is away, he's doing this and he earns that much more. Verse 17, so also he who had the two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. So the first two obeyed, the third took what he was supposed to use for the master's use, 
and he went and hid it. He went and buried it in the ground. Now, after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here, I have made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He was commended for his faithfulness, not his results, his faithfulness. Verse 22, he also who had the two talents came forward saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here I have made two talents more. His master said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. There's that promotion again. And that blessing, enter into the joy of your master. Notice the second servant was not asked, how come he didn't do more? This guy gave me five more. How come he didn't give me five more? He only gave me two more. He was commended for his faithfulness. Verse 24. He also had received the one talent, came forward saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here, you have what is yours. But his master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant. You knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I have scattered no seed. Now, this part is not part of the uh, relation to who God is. He's not a, a, a master who reaps where he does not sow and gather where he scattered no seed. That, that, that's part of the continuing the parable. That's not describing who God is. But he, he says, you wicked and slothful servant, verse 27, then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers and at my coming I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has the ten talents for to everyone who has will more be given and he will have an abundance but from the one who has not even what he has will be taken away and cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Brothers and sisters, this parable is not invest wisely. The, the point of this is not the talents um, that you to, are to use uh, for your own gain or to try to double what God's given you. The talents were given to the servants from the master to use for his purposes. They were his resources to be used for his reasons. The point was because the end is near, be a good steward of what God has given to you with all the resources he's given you. Be faithful to do it. The worthless servant was not the one who only gained two more talents, less than the other one. It was the one who did nothing with it. And he's called a wicked and slothful servant because he rejected his job as steward. He said, no, I'm not doing that. I'm just going to hide whatever you've given me. I'm not going to do what you told me to do. Brother and sister, Peter's teaching here is not for us to be like that servant. Don't be like that steward the steward in Jesus' parable. and He's not talking about miraculous gifts here either, is he? I mean, in a minute, back in 1 Peter, he's not going to be talking about now start speaking in tongues every day and start healing everybody and raising people from the dead. Speaking and serving. It's gifts that he gives, that he uses in miraculous ways through us. He has given every one of us at least a gift, and he's made us, each and every one of us, a steward of that gift, to use that gift. So we all need to be using our gifts. That is how to be ready for his return. That brings a blessing and a commendation from him and a hope for future glory rather than a fear of judgment. Brothers and sisters, I can't tell you in ministry how many times I've wanted to quit because it's hard. 
Serving others can be hard. It can be demanding. It's continual. We don't have an option to quit. We don't have a choice of whether to go bury our master's gift in the sand. We're commanded to use it for him. But there's hope even when it gets hard. Look at how Peter describes it here in verse 11. There are two categories for these gifts, speaking gifts and serving gifts. How do we use these gifts? Whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. We're not speaking our own oracles, our own wisdom, or funny anecdotes, or our own creativity, whatever it is. We God's words. You don't have to be a preacher or a pastor. You don't have to be a singer or a missionary or a teacher or a counselor. You, you may not have been given any of those responsibilities, but the gift that you have for speaking, we're speaking as if the oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies. Unlike the master in that parable who went away, our master doesn't just give us the gift. He stays with us and enables us to use the gift He strengthens us to be able to serve. He gives us the words. He gives us the strength. And none of it means it's going to be easy. That's why we need his strength. It's too much for us to do on our own. That's why he stays with us. That's why he gives us the strength and his word because he is enough. This is how we can be ready for the end. And this is how we can be ready for the end in terms of the point for everything, the purpose, the goal for everything for the suffering of our life, for creation, for salvation, for faithful obedience, whether we're suffering or not, until he calls us home, either through death or through the return of our Lord, the point for all of it is the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. When Jesus is glorified, the Father is glorified. This hope that we have is because it's from God's grace. The glory all goes to him, but he works through us and he uses us, and the Father is glorified when Jesus is glorified. And he says, to him belong glory and dominion forever and ever, amen. All of the glory, the praise, the credit, all of the singing, all of the praying, all of the speaking, all of the serving, it's all for him. He uses that, he counts that as our worship to him when we're serving one another, when we're speaking to one another, when we're loving. So we do all that we do in service, in love, in controlling our mind, in all that we do in in kindling our heart, in all that we do in conducting our lives for the glory of this great God. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, whether you're eating or drinking, yeah, I need a drink of water, all for the glory of God. (laughs) To him belong glory and dominion. Dominion means he's got it all together. He's got it all under control. He's the sovereign, powerful, good, amazing God. ages and ages, forever and ever. It's all for our God. So our application, and we won't spend time on developing this application, but it's a simple application. Prepare for the end by increasing obedience in heart, in mind, heart, and service. Increase this obedience. Don't set it aside. Don't forget about it. Don't panic and and wig out. This is what he wants from us. This is what he tells us he wants. What's God's will for my life? This is it. And control my mind so I pray, kindle my heart so that I'm loving, enough to forgive, enough to be hospitable, conducting myself for his glory, everything that I do, examining it all so that he can be glorified. Father God, we praise you, Lord. We lift up the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. 
He is the one who saved us, Lord. He's the one who created us, God. He knows us better than we know ourselves. And yet, He loves us. He loved us enough to forgive us. He loves us enough to be hospitable, to invite us into His presence, God. Father, I thank You. Thank You just doesn't seem to do it justice, but Father, continually we say thank You. God, I pray that You would work in us to continually live. Thank You. God, that in our hearts and our minds and our conduct, Lord, all that we do and say and think and feel, God, that it would all be done for your glory. We know that we can't do any of this on our own strength, God. We know we can't control our own mind. We, you control it through your word and through prayer. God, we can't make our hearts feel. But God, we can, we can kindle up the heart that you've given us, the heart of love, the love that you've given us we can share. God, I pray that you would work in us to do that. Father, the conduct that glorifies you, Lord, if we're doing it ourselves, if we're, if we're drumming that up in ourselves and just straining ourselves to work harder, God, it will amount to nothing. But if you do it in us, God, what glory there is in that. What, what commendation from you, even though you've done it. But God, we know that there's glory ahead. There's a future of hope and of peace and no sin and no weakness, God. Lord, we look forward to that day. We look forward to the end of all things, the point for all things, your glory, when everyone will recognize you for who you are. Lord, I pray that you would give us a taste of that every day, that we would recognize that, that we would grow in our love for you and that we would do what you've said for us to do. Lord, we praise you for your goodness. We praise you for your greatness. God, we pray and we sing and we do all of this for your glory, for the great name of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, in his name, amen.